0: Midtown Detroit Studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: Are we living in an era that offers us as much opportunity for change as Reconstruction did in the 19th century or the civil rights era did in the late 20th century? Author Panil Joseph says we are in his new book, The Third Reconstruction, and he'll join today to talk about the ways in which he believes our chance and our obligations right now to create real racial justice may never have been better. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us on this first day of May in 2023. If there's one thing we talk about more than anything on this show, it's the idea of opportunity. The ability of everyone in our nation to access the things they need to not only fulfill their most basic needs, but also to fuel their dreams. And we talk about this concept in both individual and collective terms. Yes, equal opportunity is about how each of us is treated and what barriers stand in our individual ways. But it's also about a cultural and societal commitment to being sure there aren't barriers for other people either that there aren't institutional inequalities that disqualify some Americans from the rights and privileges that others enjoy. And you can't talk about that in this country without talking about racism. When we think about that collective idea of equality – There are certain eras in our history when it has taken center stage and the debate about it has taken center stage. And when we've had a chance as a nation to think about and make change around the awful discrimination that has held African-Americans specifically outside the sphere of American equality. The first era like that was after the Civil War, when the federal government decided that elimination of laws that permitted slavery and prevented black advancement, that wasn't enough. There needed to be specific policies and ideas that repaired the damage done by nearly two centuries of brutal inequality. But the Reconstruction Era, which is what came out of that effort, never reached its full vision in the 1870s or in the decades thereafter. Instead, there was a real backlash to that movement, and it ushered in a period of really entrenched anti-black racism and violence. A second reconstructive era in America dawned, though, in the 1960s, nearly a century later, when black activism inspired legislation and social change that it was hoped— would finally level the playing field for African Americans. Lots of things change. Lots of milestones have been reached since that time. But in so many ways, the challenges still remain. Inequality, of course, is still with us. Which means the strands of the idea of reconstruction have never really left us. At least that's what University of Texas historian Dr. Peniel Joseph Is arguing these days. He says that in recent years, we have been undergoing a third resurgence of Reconstructionist values and actions. You see it in the Black Lives Matter protests against police violence, a movement for police and prison abolition, the Me Too movement, and the advancement of reparations for Black Americans whose ancestors tied directly into American slavery. But like with the original periods of Reconstruction, there are backlashes everywhere. Today, a lot of Americans just don't want to acknowledge the brutality of American slavery. A number of American leaders are preventing African Americans in the South from even participating in our elections, something they have been doing for more than two centuries. And mass incarceration continues to hold African Americans back in pretty much every state In our union. So, how do we answer the questions about the moment that we are in and whether Reconstruction, the idea of Reconstruction, is still alive enough to push us toward a better state? What does Reconstruction mean in our current political conflict? That's where we begin the conversation this week. And to talk about all this, we have Dr. Peniel Joseph with us. He is an historian at the University of Texas, and, as I said, his most recent book is called The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. Dr. Joseph, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah. So let's uh, start with a reminder uh, for our listeners about what the original Reconstruction period was, what was happening during that time, and why it didn't work.
2: Certainly, Reconstruction is um, the first period of multiracial democracy in American history. So we're really thinking about the period from 1865. um, And I give a long Reconstruction period to 1898 and the Wilmington Massacre there. Um, And you can begin, you know, earlier than 1865, as early as 1863, uh, in places like Tennessee and other parts of the South, um, you're really finding black people um, and formerly enslaved uh, taking over plantations um, as as Union armies advance. Um, You know, you you have black folks in Tennessee reading from the Declaration of Independence in 1863, uh, and this is happening. Uh, in other parts of the South too. So you're really getting, uh, when we think about multiracial democracy for the first time, you're getting um, black um, elected officials, and not just at the federal level, but really the most important arguably is gonna be at the local level. So for instance, in a place like Mississippi, there's gonna be 26 counties uh, that are 60% black and more, and you're gonna have folks who are uh, sheriffs and magistrates uh, and, and are part of assemblies and, um, you know, city councils uh, in the 1860s and the 1870s. So it's really quite uh, remarkable uh, in Texas where I live. Uh, same thing in a place like Tarrant County, which is now Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have uh, local uh, city council. You're going to, you know, have uh, black uh, elected officials. And really, black folks buy up in 1872 um, Emancipation Park, ten acres. What is today Emancipation Park, um, as as early as eighteen seventy two. So you're going to have black churches, congregations, um, freedom schools, uh, people who are building up businesses. Black people have always been entrepreneurs, um, um, both in agriculture and in other industries. Um, but simultaneous with that, that you're going to have real racial grievances and resentments uh, by 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 whites, um, both. People who are part of the Confederate oligarchy at the top, but also poor whites and yeoman farmers who are now upset that they're going to have to competitively compete with black people. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that we often don't talk about that, you know, the, 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 the politics of racial grievance uh, a lot of times in America are situated um, one way, but in fact, they're the other way. Um, most of that has historically been anti-black racial grievance, and not because of this idea of um, black people committing crimes or wanting more than their fair share, but not wanting black people to compete in in the capitalist uh, market. And you know, in our country, because of racial slavery, yes, we've always had capitalism, but the kind of capitalism we've had is is a is a racialized capitalism, where um, black labor. The benefits of black labor are exploited and super exploited in a way where they um, coalesce uh, towards towards white communities and white neighborhoods and white businesses and banks and corporations and private private pop- property and that's that's unfair and it's not the way again a capitalist system is technically supposed to work but we have a very specific history so when we think about that history of reconstruction We get the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments, which abolish slavery, birthright citizenship, black male voting suffrage. Um, But we also get the start of historically black colleges or land grant institutions like Howard University, technically just a land grant institution, but a de facto HBCU. Um, And we get black leaders all across the United States um, who are pushing the country Uh, to do different things politically. So for instance, in South Carolina, you get the first uh, movement uh, for a political new deal. Mm -hmm. So it's black legislators in South Carolina who um, really institutionalize um, the reconstruction of of railroads and bridges, but also they, for the first time, create a uh, public school system in South Carolina. Um, And they create, um, anti-poverty efforts and hospitals and other things in South Carolina that the way they try to create those in the late 1860s, 1870s is um, in, a, in a racially integrative um, fashion. So there's a lot of sort of daring innovation that happens for the first time during Reconstruction as well. So it's really a moment that's um, pregnant with a lot of possibilities, not just for multiracial democracy, but also for redistributive justice. Because if things like um, black people gaining access to the so-called 40 acres and a mule mm-hmm. had really occurred, of course, um, white yeoman farmers, who, who eventually really did get a lot of access when you think about the Homestead Act and immigrants got a lot of access, you know, there would have been redistributive justice for everyone. So it was it was very hard to convince whites of that, although there were certain interracial populist movements um, that that did so, but the most capacious populist movements became white supremacist movements. So people like Tom Watson and other people started out as as interracial populists, but they eventually uh, became white supremacist populists, and and you can still see some of that white supremacist populist strain from the first Reconstruction both in the second through people like George Wallace and certainly in the third through people like Donald Trump.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to spend some time talking about um, the backlash to reconstruction and how thoroughly that backlash wiped out many of the things that you were just talking about. These ideas of, uh, kind of a a, a multiracial democracy, a, a more inclusive democracy, and a more inclusive economy, um, and, and how the 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 rise of anti-black racism and anti-black violence not only prevents the advancement of of African Americans after the war, uh, but but ushers in a new era of of inequality. That has its own uh, kind of brutality and grows into uh, a much darker era than I think anyone at the time might have might have anticipated.
2: Yeah, certainly. Um, You know, when we think about the backlash, I think all these periods of reconstruction, uh, there's a backlash paralleling um, the progress. Uh, and, and including our own. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we think about that period from 1865 to 1898, um, you know, the first backlash starts with the, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So once Lincoln is assassinated in April of 1865, unfortunately for the country, but especially for black people, Andrew Johnson, who had been, a, um, a you know, his vice president, who was a Tennessee unionist. So Johnson's a complex figure in the sense that he is, he is for the union, and there were a lot of white people like this, didn't want Tennessee to secede, but he's not an abolitionist and he is a, an, an inveterate anti-black racist. So he becomes president and really between 1865 and 1868 until a radical Reconstructionists in the House are able to impeach Johnson, um, not successfully by one vote, but really basically They remove him from the political equation. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the first backlash. So Johnson pardons the tens of thousands of Confederates and really gives them carte blanche in terms of how to reenter the union. Um, And we're gonna see a lot of violence, Memphis, New Orleans, 1866, these different racial pogroms where black communities in rural and urban areas are um, attacked. Uh, So that's one wave of, of backlash. Um, Between 1868 and 1876, in certain ways, it's a high point of reconstruction um, because different states are gonna be divided up into um, basically military camps. And uh, the only way you can get back into the union is by having um, interracial state conventions. And that's when we're gonna see um, different aspects of black uh, Republican political power and sometimes interracial uh, political power between black and white Republicans, sometimes Democrats um, enter into the equation and that's where we get these names, you know, these names of carpetbaggers, Mm -hmm. this idea of white Republicans who come to the south and are looking for new economic opportunities in this reconstructed south and scalawags are going to be white Democrats who are willing to work with this new political regime. Because if, if not for, the anti-black violence that is illegal but becomes legalized, and if not for a Supreme Court that allows grandfather uh, clauses and black codes and convict lease systems, um, whites within the South would have actually had to create new political coalitions to accept this new order. Mm-hmm. That's what people don't. And in certain what's interesting, Sam, in, in certain certain places they did. In certain places they didn't. That's why Wilmington becomes a very interesting example because as late as 1898, there is interracial political power in Wilmington until there's a white supremacist coup in Wilmington, November 8th, 9th, 10th of, of 1898. And so what's interesting about the politics of backlash is that there are going to still be these archipelagos of, of freedom and, and sort of fugitive democracy all throughout the South. But what you are going to see increasingly, especially after the, the administration of Ulysses S. Grant, is that the federal government is not providing um, aid, even though it's, it's very interesting. By 1871, there are public hearings in Congress against Klan violence, which is gonna mm-hmm. result in the, the, the Klan acts or the enforcement acts, anti-KKK um, acts. Um, there's gonna be different efforts to mobilize uh, both military and black paramilitary uh, strength against um, racial violence and racial terror. So it it, it it really is complex, so in certain ways, there absolutely is going to be a thorough repudiation of Reconstruction. But on on the ground in in Black communities, uh, there's going to be very, very real efforts and attempts to maintain Black dignity and citizenship. So it's really paralleling. I think sometimes we tell the story either as um, a success or a failure, but it's much more complex. And the 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 ideas of Reconstruction never, never end, but you are correct in the sense that Reconstruction is a a narrative war between supporters of multiracial democracy who are Reconstructionists and Redemptionists who are supporters of, of, of white supremacy and the lost cause. And by the end of Reconstruction, the Redemptionists win that narrative war culturally, politically, socially, economically, they reinstitute and reinscribe a new form of racial subjugation under the terminology Jim Crow. Yep. Um, and until the second reconstruction, until the heroic period of the civil rights Black Power era, that becomes um, the reality for, for, for black Americans and white Americans and other Americans in the United States. And that that's a huge lost opportunity. Uh, during that first period of reconstruction. Yeah.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Peniel Joseph, historian at University of Texas and author of a new book uh, called The Third Reconstruction, American Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. I want to get going with the listeners uh, on the phones and on social. What do you make of this period in America right now? Do you have optimism about us solving the history of racial inequality and violence in our nation? Do you have hope that the things that we're seeing right now will result in that kind of change? Uh, Do you think we're going through a period of racial progress, racial backlash, or something maybe in between? 313 577 1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined. We're talking today to Dr. Panil Joseph. He is an historian at the University of Texas, and his most recent book is The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. That's what we're talking about. Are we in an era of profound racial struggle that might result in more equality. Two different eras in our history uh, mirrored that kind of trend. Reconstruction in the 1870s and the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Are we now in a very similar time period where we're seeing this struggle between those who really want multiracial, inclusive democracy to work and Those who don't uh, take center stage. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. Uh, Dr. Joseph, I want to talk uh, about the modern era for a bit before we get to, to callers one of the things you wrestle with a lot in your book is former president Barack Obama and i think it's something that as african americans all of us really struggle with which is the the sort of uh, dichotomy represented uh, by the milestone that he that he reaches and i tell this i tell this story to people all the time a kind of personal Uh, anecdote about uh, uh, Barack Obama, but I I talk about my own father who was born in Mississippi in 1933 and how he grows up to uh, join the Air Force and go off to the Korean War and comes home in the 1950s to a Mississippi where even as a veteran, even as a war veteran, uh, he can't vote. He can't sit at a lunch counter in the, uh, the downtown in the city where he lives. He can't, uh, he can't benefit from the GI Bill, uh, go to college or, or buy a home, you know, with, with federal help. Um, this is in the 1950s. Uh, but his grandchildren, my children, uh, the first president they know is a black man whose name is Barack Obama, And so there is this kind of bittersweet aspect of Obama and the role he plays uh, in our history and the role he plays for us as African-Americans in that, um, you know, only in America, I think, maybe, is it possible for in two generations uh, that kind of swing to take place. At the same time, the fact that my father spent his entire life uh, dealing with the consequences of the discrimination he faced as a young person is a terrible terrible stain on on our country you seem to have uh, a similar kind of struggle of course with obama and uh, his legacy in the book
2: oh, oh absolutely i think i think obama you know i have incredible you know admiration for obama and the achievement and it was really the country's achievement black people's achievement Uh, more so than his own singular achievement. What I think the complexity of Obama, and I I juxtapose Obama against BLM activists, and Obama certainly is a Reconstructionist uh, and BLM activists are radical Reconstructionists, is that Obama um, still at least uh, publicly believes in this idea of American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think you know, we get into trouble. Uh, American exceptionalism tells us all a great, you know, it's a fairy tale. It tells us a bedtime story mm-hmm. with a beginning, a middle, and an end, happy end about how the country came to be. And it basically says, you know, any problem we've ever had. We we've been able to solve. So when we think about American exceptionalism, we we will use Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as an example to pat ourselves on the back and say, "You see, we have this racism problem, and <laughs> King fixed it, and sort of sacrificed his life like Jesus for us. Um, um, he fixed it." Uh, but but that's not true. American exceptionalism is based on two two big lies. The first lies that black people are not human beings, which is how you can create the system of racialized slavery um and set up this global uh uh, system of capitalism racial capitalism uh in in perpetuity and even once slavery ends um you do it through jim crow racial segregation convict leasing um you know uh, uh, you know restricting redlining not providing access to gi's racial pogroms all these different methods um, but you could get away with it because you said black people are not human beings. And then the second lie is saying that the first never happened. Mm-hmm. Never acknowledging that. Right. That's the second lie. And you can. It continues into the third reconstruction with what the Florida governor and Texas governors are doing with K through 12 education, uh, the critical race theory hoax and the anti-DEI measures that are being institutionalized all over the United States. So Obama believes in a vision of American exceptionalism where black people get to be political leaders as well. The only problem with that is that uh, a redemptionist uh, drift is baked into his conception of, uh, of American exceptionalism, right? And so that's why when he meets with Black Lives Matter activists in December of 2014, he can't possibly imagine that the next American president is going to be Donald J. Trump and mm-hmm. open-white supremacists. But they, can. <laughs>
1: <That's> the, <laughs> they, say they can. They say, in fact. So that, yeah. Obama's
2: right. drinking, drinking the Kool-Aid gets him elected, the American exceptionalist Kool-Aid, but it, it leaves us high and dry. And when I say us, it's not the entire black community because there are people who do exceptionally well during the Obama administrations. But the us I'm thinking about are people who are incarcerated, who are mentally ill, who are queer, who are trans, um, who are black women um, uh, living below or right below, above the poverty line and have families of one, two, three, four. My mom was a single mom of two and and who are doing heroic work, who are not within that vision of American exceptionalism because they're they're not going to Harvard Law. They're not going to go to Columbia. They're not going to be um, people who private equity and hedge funders and Wall Streeters want to hang out with and give money to, okay, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so the, the Obama victory becomes partially chimera for Black people who are living at the lower frequencies, you know, which I get from Ralph Ellison, at the lower frequencies, where mm-hmm. we, these are people who we can't see unless we criminalize them and stereotype them and make fun of them and publicly humiliate them for existing. Yeah. Right. So I have, I, I both admire Obama, but then because again, I'm coming from a, 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 a black household in New York city and segregated in New York city, Jamaica, Queens in the 1980s. My mother was a proud member of SCIU 1199 hospital worker for 40 years. I was on my first picket line at six, seven years old in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, when you're coming from that background, you realize what solidarity actually means. It's not, it's it's not a joke. It's these are picket lines, and I remember the old the old thermoses where people were drinking coffee. Mm-hmm. Everybody was smoking cigarettes. There was no smoking, <laughs> no smoking <laughs> sign, right? And we didn't wear seatbelts. That's how. I, okay,
1: right.
2: all right. That's that's the America that I grew up in. So I know what solidarity means. I know what racial segregation means. I was 14 when Michael Griffith. Was murdered by a white mob in New York City in the Howard Beach section, 1986. I was 12 when Eleanor Bumpers, a 66-year-old grandmother, was murdered by the NYPD. So Obama never acknowledged that America, and because I come from it, I would never betray them by acting like that's cool yeah. because he won the presidency.
1: And and the, the 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 thing that I always come back to is again. Um this this dichotomy that that people like you and I grow up in that um, that there is a Barack Obama is remarkable, but that we don't have to look far in our own lives uh, or in our own histories for the things that existed before uh, before us uh, that that made African Americans unequal in our society, and the things that that produces today, when I tell that story about my father, I always say, look, this is not some ancestor I read about in a book. This was the first man I knew. And his whole life was shaped by this awful discrimination and and inequality. And that there isn't a way to unsee that uh, because his grandchildren, Get to live in an America where, hey, they know a black pres. They know that black people can be president. Uh, but the, the, there isn't a disconnect between that era of struggle and today. And there, uh, you know, the the point you're making and the point I always try to make is that you can't disconnect those things. It's not just dishonest. It's impossible. They they are a- one. A- absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead.
2: And and you know you don't have to. I think the the the, the problem is you can still say you love the country and talk about these histories. And I think that Obama had a hard time doing that, right? So even in the race speech from March 18, 2008, to get up from under Jeremiah Wright, he says that um, on one level, Wright has the right to be upset because of these histories of Jim Crow and racial slavery. But then he says, White people have a right to be upset because they're angry over affirmative
1: action. Right, right. It's not right? the same thing. And so
2: right. he does this. He does. He does this. Um, this idea of moral equivalency between white racial grievance over struggles for black citizenship and dignity, and this history, this huge history, the original sin of the United States racial slavery in its afterlife. And there is no moral equivalency, right? But people, once he finishes that speech, that both saves his candidacy and people say it's the best speech on race since Abraham Lincoln. Mm. So we really are lost. I'm not surprised about Trump or any of this stuff because we we, we are lost souls. Dr. King, um, by, by the end of his life, he has a great speech remaining awake in a time of, of revolution. And what he pushes us, he talks about a revolution of values he talks about how he loves the country but he's going to criticize the country he pushes the country and says we need to be politically mature enough to to face and confront this history hmm. right yeah. and again i think obama who's brilliant absolutely brilliant didn't think he could face this history and still win elections, which is why Obama was never MLK. And I always talk, I talk about that in the book, uh, the, In know, in a lot of ways, black people projected and white people, all these things onto him, but he was a president and he wasn't a social movement leader because the reason why King and people like Malcolm X and the Ella Bakers could be so Fannie Lou Hamer, so truthful for all of us is that they weren't running for office.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. They didn't <laughs> they were, have to,
2: I felt myself, i I tell my students this all the time you can you speaking truth to power you're relying not on a base that's going to elect you or not elect you you're a social movement leader who's making sure that these truths that you're articulating will be institutionalized at the granular level into all the, the the structures and the bone and the sinew and the fiber of the very country it's soul that's why king the sclc southern christian leadership conference they're Their tagline was to redeem the soul of America. And King was serious, even if some other people weren't. He was actually serious, but you can do both. Obama never found the language to say, I love the country, I love America, but I don't love settler colonialism and the racism, the sexism, the homophobia, what we've done to poor whites as well as poor blacks and Latinx, all these different things. And we can change it. We can build the beloved community, but we have to confront it. And that's what Reconstructionists have been doing since the 19th century. They all love the country, and they would say it uh, vocally, but they 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 resisted this redemptionist vision of America, this authoritarian, this racist, this violent vision of America.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, we need to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Dr. Peniel Joseph. A historian at the University of Texas. And we'll get going with the, you, the listeners, on the phones and on social. Dan in Southfield, Georgia and Detroit, you'll be up first. If you want to join them, give us a call and let us know what you make of this era in American history and the opportunity that it presents for us. Are we headed toward another try at equality, another try at participatory democracy that does not exclude people on the basis of race or other factors? factors. Uh, Also, uh, give us a call and let us know what you are doing as part of this area. Are you part of uh, one of these movements? Are you someone who is doing the work to try to push America forward? Tell us what that's about and tell us what the kind of backlash is that you experience. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll be right back right after a few minutes uh, here on Detroit Today. WDET provides trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WGET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and our guest today is Dr. Peniel Joseph, an historian at the University of Texas. He has a new book out called Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Race- Racial Justice in the 21st century century we are talking about the idea of racial justice over time in history and in the present era we want to hear from you as well on the phones and on social 313 1019 is the number here you can also go to twitter and hashtag detroit today and we can make you part of the program that way let's start today with george in detroit george welcome to the program Thank you, thank,
0: thank you. you. Yeah, my name is uh, Father George Alex Steinmiller. I live and work in Detroit in Detroit Public Schools, and I, I had a question for Doctor Joseph. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm intrigued about his book about uh, a third Reconstruction, which God knows our country needs. But here, here's my my question: Is Reconstruction addressing the innate uh, the innate racism? that continues in our most basic institutions. There's an article in the free press this morning from about Wayne State University and its, its hospital system, mm-hmm. and how a doctor uh, is suing because of discrimination. Why? Because how white doctors do not understand the pain, the pain of a black person. Mm-hmm. And, and they listed a few biases that I think 30% of young white doctors buy into and i found my i found that rather disturbing and i wondered is reconstruction addressing the innate racism that continues in our system i hope my question's clear
1: yeah no uh george uh, i i really appreciate the call uh i did see that uh i did see that that uh that story, and it is about a, a a doctor who's saying that you know bias against African American patients in healthcare, especially when they're talking about the pain that they have, uh, is a, a violation of, of their rights. It gets to I think a really important concept, which is not about uh, individuals but about institutions and the 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 morals and cultural norms that guide those institutions that don't depend on individual action uh, to be discriminatory. They just they just kind of are there's a momentum almost behind them that that makes them that way. Uh, Dr. Joseph, I wonder what your reaction is to George's George's question.
2: Oh yeah, I think it's a great question, but no, absolutely, I think so. I think, you know, the period that I outline is from 2008 to the present, and some of what he's talking about is in Linda Villarosa's uh, new book, Under the Skin, The Hidden mm-hmm. Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. I just was at a Texas Health Equity uh, Conference giving a keynote, and I think right now, we we actually have more um, healthcare workers, uh, both on the worker side, but the activist side, that are looking and pointing out and pushing both a conversation, but a policy movement uh, to transform institutional racism and structural racism within both healthcare, a health equity movement, but within all of the healthcare uh, supply chains and networks. So, um, certainly, Wayne State is going to be one of just many, many um, different examples. But I would say that. When we think about these hinge points in this period of third reconstruction with the Obama election, BLM 1.0, um, the rise of Trump, and then 2020, and what we've seen since 2020, uh, we, part of the reason why the backlash is so thick is that we do have folks who are, are ready and are um, pushing uh, for health equity because BLM was, is, is part of that. The policy agenda of BLM was not just about transforming the criminal justice system, it was about mental and physical health and well-being. And healthcare is connected to climate change, it's connected to labor, it's connected to um, uh, systems of punishment. And so even when we think about abolition, we're not, those of us who are abolitionists are not just talking about abolishing systems of punishment, we're also talking about institutionalizing new systems of, of care and that's how you create that beloved community. So yes, I would say at that granular level. And I would I would even argue that, you know, to to the um to the caller's uh, question and statement, I think one of the exciting aspects about the period we're in now is that we have more people who are aware of this than ever before and who want to change it. Hmm. It's just that because of that and you saw this in 2020 and this is connected to the 1619 project which has i teach which has a great chapter on health and health care um, because of that you've seen this pushback to absolutely eradicate this history because mm-hmm. by 2020 and this is why biden and harris first black woman vp won the election reconstructionists certainly were winning the narrative war and that's why you even see in that election 81 million to 74 million trump's base grew by 11 million um, but those who voted for hillary and the reconstructionist base grew by 18 million right right? right. so on some levels if you focus on the 74 million you're going to get super depressed and i'm not telling you to not notice (laughs) that there's 74 million who, for whatever reason, voted for this white supremacist candidate. It doesn't mean that all 74 million think of themselves as inveterate racists. Some of them voted because they say, hey, they like tax cuts or sure. they like this or they like that. But but that's that's what they really voted for. And then you have 81 million in the, who, who vote for this Reconstructionist. And maybe they voted only because they felt the other side was too extreme. Maybe by the next election cycle, they go back. But... It just shows you the power. But but because of the way this constitutional democracy works, reconstructionists were not necessarily able to, during the first two years of the Biden administration, get all of the policies they wanted passed. Right. Because you you still needed 50 senators to vote with you and and 218 in the House. Mm -hmm. So. Um, we we are in a Reconstructionist um, period and the Biden administration is a Reconstructionist administration and, and even though we didn't get George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and we did not get the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and, and Build Back Better in the way in which people wanted, there were still huge, huge things um, that were done, including the pandemic bill, which, which really impacted Black and Latino children, mm-hmm. Um, and put them above the poverty line for the first time, including the scale down Build Back Better, which is doing more environmental justice, uh, redistributive justice for the first time in American history, efforts to aid black farmers, efforts at different equity bills and science technology, Agriculture there, there's there's a lot done. Certainly, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson and, and the first black woman on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. There's been more black women placed on the federal bench than ever in American history. So there's there's a lit there's a litany of things that are actually happening. Um, but but certainly the onslaught against this is very reminiscent of the first um uh two periods of Reconstruction, but especially the 19th century, because the the open racism of the 19th century is back, and and that is in large part because the Voting Rights Act has been greatly curtailed uh, by um, a redemptionist Supreme Court led by um, John Roberts. So part of what we have are these institutions that are um, led by redemptionists or authoritarians that go back to the 19th century. And remember, reconstructionists and redemptionists, they're not color-coded. Clarence Thomas is a redemptionist, <laughs> right? right? And, and, and you have a, a boatload of white reconstructionists as well, right? So this is not color-coded. You know, this is not about the color of your skin <laughs> means that you're for a multiracial democracy. But, but certainly, yes, people are fighting against uh, these structures of racism in health and in other arenas.
1: Yeah, yeah. Again, George, really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Aaron in Belleville. Aaron, welcome to the show. Yes, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Um, so I, I love the topic, and and I'm all of this makes me think about even you know during the first Reconstruction when uh, reparations was given out, I guess to a select few. Mm-hmm. To me, I think part of the solution would actually be actually passing you know reg- uh, reparations for African Americans given. The harm that's you know that happened uh, to our people you know throughout time in the history of this country um and what what you said earlier uh dr dosler about uh not admitting that, that that these things happen and 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 secondly uh, i forget how you said it exactly but but basically denying that all this happened is something that i think helps uh people kind of forget about Uh, uh, some of the things that happen
0: in this
1: country, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, I'm glad you called and uh, raised that issue. We haven't talked much about reparations, but uh, Dr. Joseph, I want to put it in the context of solutions, which we also haven't talked a whole lot about. Uh, What are the things that you imagine are possible right now uh, in terms of that, that reconstruction And the things that we should be really, really focused on, I would imagine reparations is on the list, but I also imagine there are some other things.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a big supporter of reparations, both at the federal level, at the state, the local level, Um, you know, banks, universities, um, municipalities should be thinking about the way they could repair. We've seen some reparative uh, slavery reports from Brown University, Harvard, Harvard, uh, UVA um, and 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 other uh, uh, places, Georgetown, and they've tried to do some things. So I think reparation is a multi-layered um, solution, um, and and you know the things that I would focus on right now uh, would be uh, you know b- voting rights and and re not just Section Five of the VRA. But having uniform federal voting rights across all 50 states in terms of access Mm -hmm. that prevents states like Texas and Florida from stopping early voting and from um, having the kind of voter ID that that uh, will, will put people in jail if if their driver's license is not exactly where they live, where they vote. These are all coming from. These are all redemptionist tactics from the first reconstruction that have still managed to um, impact um, and be be law. Um, the, the other thing is really this idea of of, um, you know, uh, what's going on with freedom of speech and uh, K through 12 and anti CRT and anti DEI. We, we have to be in solidarity to make sure that black history can be taught and that. We we don't turn diversity, equity, inclusion, justice into a curse word because we have white supremacists, legislators and even some citizens who feel that these are curse words that that brings us way back to really antebellum America, where racial slavery was 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 thriving. Um, And then finally, I'd say it's a combination of of. Abolition, when we think about Du Bois, called this abolition democracy in his great book, Black Reconstruction in 1934. And by abolition democracy, he meant not just the abolition of slavery, but systems of punishment and then the investment in systems that allow us to flourish. So I think we should really, really take a hard look at policing in this country. How do we define public safety, prisons, and really invest in a guaranteed income for folks, which is what Dr. King wanted with the Poor People's Campaign, eradicating poverty, eradicating homelessness, um, eradicating uh, the marginalization of so many different zip codes and communities that are not thriving um, because of structures and because of the histories that we're talking about. And this this is a cultural component here where we have to stop criminalizing people who are black, who are immigrant, um, who are queer, who are trans, Um, people who look uh, who look unlike um, who look unlike us whatever that us is that Mm -hmm. us is usually white but not always Um, the Asian American Pacific Islander hate um, the 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 hate against indigenous people the recurrence and recruitance of anti-semitism in this country all of this is connected all of this is connected so absolutely I'm for reparations but we we need to have a new compact between um, not just citizens in the state, but between all people in the state, because dignity is the thing that links us all together, because not all of us have passports in the United States or globally. All citizenship and that passport is, is an external recognition of your God-given dignity. So if we all have human dignity, and my mom taught me this, either all of us count Um, or none of us us can. And I'm I'm in the the former category of saying all of us count. And so I am in solidarity with everybody who is working and struggling towards that reconstructionist vision. I'm not in solidarity with those folks who are redemptionists, with those folks who think they have control over women's bodies, those folks who are pro-segregation, irrespective of their color, um, those folks who are uh, think it's fine for people to go hungry in the richest country in the world yeah, yeah. <laughs> and think it's fine for people to be um sent to prison forever and ever. So I'm not in solidarity with that, but I think there are more of us who are reconstructionists but we don't have um, access to the levers of power. To the power. It doesn't mean, it's not hope.
1: Yeah. Dr. Joseph, it was really great to have you here on Detroit Today, and really wonderful to read your book. The book, again, is The Third Reconstruction, Racial Justice in the 21st Century. Dr. Joseph, thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today.
2: Thank you. I really enjoyed it
1: going to do it for us. We'll be back tomorrow to talk with EJ Dion about what it means for President Joe Biden to run for a second term. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.